Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. On this week's episode of 90 Degrees, we talk to a college football expert to get you ready for week one of the season. Are Georgia and Alabama going to get derailed by their new quarterbacks? Does USC actually have a chance to win? And how to create power ratings for 133 teams? That and more on today's episode of 90 Degrees. Welcome to the 90 Degrees Podcast. I'm your host, G-Stack Georgia, and I'm excited. Usually I'm talking pro football. I don't do much of college football, but I'm going to be talking to a guest who is an expert in the field. I've got Kelly Ford from thelines.com joining me today. Kelly, thanks for joining me. Yeah, George, I appreciate it. Thanks for having me on. It's always fun talking college football, and the season's finally here. I know we get started a little bit earlier than your favorite, the NFL, but we're here in college football, and the games are right around the corner. I'm so excited. It's going to be a great season, and yeah, I just I appreciate you having me on. This is going to be a fun conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Like this is it's week one, and everybody's getting all excited. Uh, I myself don't have a love for college sports, so. I want to know, where did your love for college sports begin? Was it young? Did you grow into it? Yeah, for sure. So it started very young. College football has been my favorite sport, George, for literally as long as I can remember. And I truly don't even remember, like, why. My earliest memories of college football, I was born in 1992. My earliest memories are, like, late 1990s, you know, right around the 2000 era. Um, I remember some of those games. My favorite team, always has been, always will be, is Ohio State. Um, that 2002 national championship team was very special for me. That really solidified my love for college football, I think, and, and really, really took it over the top. The 2007 season, while Ohio State lost in the national championship game, the 2007 season is my favorite season of college football ever. There were so many upsets. Every single weekend, it was just chaos. It was left and right. You couldn't look away. It was so much fun. It was compelling. That cemented college football as my favorite sport of all time and unlikely to ever be supplanted. Uh, now I actually work in college athletics. So I'm a associate commissioner at a Division One conference, the Horizon League. We don't sponsor football, which is actually a good thing. It allows me to enjoy college football instead of working at all the games uh, on the weekends. But yeah, I've definitely carried forward that love for college football and college athletics from childhood, adolescence, all the way up now through my professional career as a college athletics administrator. So it's deep in me. It's not going anywhere, uh, even though we're experiencing lots of changes in the college athletics landscape, particularly in football. Lots of those coming in 2024. Um, it's still my sport of choice, and it's nothing against the NFL or the other sports. I like those too, but college football is special to me. I'm going to tell you one of the things that I can't grow a deep attachment to is the constant like revolving door of rosters and even coaches in, in some aspects. Like I like uh, longevity. I like to know a team's roots and 10 years of history. College football, like every three or four years, you're turning over the roster. Is Is that part of the attraction for you that it's like – and the other thing is I don't – like. Some of the players you watch are going to be an accountant one day in life, right? And not disparaging accountants, but they're not professional athletes. So for me, that stuff I can't get into. Or it's not, I don't feel like it's always the best of the best. And maybe that's my disconnect to the college game. Yeah, I mean, hard to, hard to argue with that, that you, not everyone goes pro. We know that um, only the best of the best from the college game make it to the NFL, of course. Um, but yeah, I think for me... I, 
I'm not attached to the players necessarily, right? Like I enjoy the players and I like the players. And of course I have my own favorite players, Chris Gamble. There's a name that you might know from the NFL, you know, played for the Panthers for a long time. He's probably not one of the more more famous college football or NFL players of all time. Chris Gamble is my favorite college football player, football player of all time. He played for Ohio State in those early 2000s, was on that 2002 national championship team. He played all three ways. He was a starting corner, he was a starting receiver, and he was the kick and punt returner for the team. I loved it. Chris Gamble, that's my guy. So it's not that I don't like the players. I do, and I enjoy players on teams that are not my own, but I'm more so attracted to the the, the programs, to the, to the teams themselves, to the universities, to the, the their colors, their mascots, more importantly, their rivalry games. Like, the, the geography of college football, it, it's going away, but it's something that I still cherish. Uh, so I, I'm not necessarily rooted in the players. And because of that, I don't mind the roster turnover. And George, you said every three to four years, brother, that's turning over every single year now with the transfer portal and all those other things that are going on. So uh, it's new and exciting every year, I guess. But to me, I get more jazzed up when I see that Ohio State logo or when I see that Michigan logo or that Georgia logo or I mean, you you name it. It's the logo for me. It's not necessarily the player. Yes, Caleb Williams is the face of USC football as a reigning Heisman Trophy winner, top 10 team coming into this year, and that's 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 a fact. But I still, if you're telling me, look at Caleb Williams' face or look at that USC Trojan head or look at that SC down on the field, like that's mm-hmm. where I gravitate to either way. So it's nothing against the players. It's just, to your point, they turn over so frequently. The programs are what remain. That's what the fan base is, I think. I'll speak for myself. That's what I get most attached to. So, um, yeah, it's no worries on that end for me. I just love these programs. I love the history, the traditions, the rivalries, all that stuff. And, uh, yeah, that's that's why I love college football. I also love that in college football there are some superstars of the game they may never end up in the NFL and have success like you know Johnny Football I'm a Texas A&M fan mm-hmm. I love Taj Boyd from Clemson yeah. like, these guys were very good uh they didn't end up being very good in the NFL but they're when you think of the all-time greatest college players Johnny Menzel's got to be in that list right the guy who knocks off Alabama plays with a little bit of magic I want to talk to you about the other aspect of college football and how large it is, um, there are so many teams and so many divisions. You build out power ratings for each college team. And before we get into that difficulty of doing that for so many teams, am I safe to assume like uh, you like, do you carry stuff over from the year before? Otherwise, I feel it'd be tedious to build it up from the ground up. Yeah, you definitely carry things over. At least I do in my in my model. So uh, in the preseason, we're looking at three main components. You're looking at returning production. So that's you know who's coming back. We talked about transfer portal and all that stuff. It makes it harder to track that stuff. But returning production is the biggest component. Uh, recent recruiting. So how well have you recruited over the last four years? You know, weighted more recently, more heavily to replace that talent that you're losing, that production that you're losing, and then also your recent K Ford ratings. So how has your program graded out on a power rating scale uh, over the last four years? overall on average again weighted the most recent years more more heavily so yes in the preseason that's all we have of course is is the data from previous years that's helping inform the numbers for this upcoming season now you can prove empirically through through tests back testing and 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 research that's out there preseason priors are do help improve they are predictable they do or predictive excuse me they do help improve the accuracy of power ratings 
when you incorporate them. So, of course, right now, that's all we have. Once we get into the season, we'll phase out the preseason prior component and we will replace it with in-season data. Uh, but yes, especially this time of year, you're definitely looking at prior year's things. Uh, most Last year is most heavily weighted, of course, but you're going back even a few years to the fact that even the 2020 season, uh, which is that COVID disrupted year, that data is still in there. I've tampered that down a bit um, based on what we know about that data, but it is still technically in the data set and still affecting the 2023 ratings just barely, and it will for one more year. Um, but again, it, it's going to be almost negligible by the time we get to this stage next year because of being four years removed. And so that's already weighted lowly. And then also the further tamping down that I'm doing because we know that data is maybe not the best. So it's like four years of data, but it's diminishing as the further it gets away from where we are. Like, Coaching is huge, right? Like when Lincoln Riley goes from Oklahoma to USC, uh, even if the rosters mostly stay the same, like aside of aside from uh, Caleb Williams, Lincoln Riley is going to elevate a lot of the guys on the roster at USC and Oklahoma is probably going to get dragged down or even Chip Kelly when he ends up in UCLA. Like I love that roster I, I i have known about zach charbonnet and greg dalsich and uh dorian thompson robinson like before a lot of people because i watched a lot of ucla like the late night stuff the coaching is is like most of the magic right with college football oh man you're getting me excited talking about pac-12 after dark we got one more year of it i'm gonna eat it up it's great uh no but yeah coaching is very important in college football you know schemes are very important the the the, the personnel the different styles of play all of that it's so there's such a larger variance in college football in those areas, as well as just overall team strength from top to bottom compared to the NFL. So those things definitely play a factor. Um, they're, they're implicitly included in my model. I am still trying to figure out a way to explicitly account for some of those things. I'm, my data set grows every single year, right, with another year's worth of data. And so I have more and more numbers to play with and, and to backtest and to tweak and, and all those things. I'm still working on a way to explicitly account for that because I agree with you coaching, you know, coaching staffs, so not just the head coach, but the coaching staffs, they play a big role. And I think we are able to show through the data. I'm not quite there yet, but I think we're going to be able to show through the data that certain coaching staffs just by the way they're constructed or by the, their philosophical approach to the game, or just the way that they make in game decisions, they are good for an extra, you know, 0 0.3, 0 0.4, 0.5 wins over the course of a season relative to the rest of the coaching staffs that are out there, right? So those are things that are certainly worth considering. They are implicitly baked into the numbers, and I am further trying to evaluate how to uh, how to adjust accordingly for those factors while maintaining the integrity of the objective nature of the power rating model. Sure. I, I imagine the transfer portal has made everything more difficult. Like you take Colorado, forget the fact that they just have Deion Sanders in like 50 new players in 50 players out. Like you must be looking at your number and saying, I've got to adjust pretty fast when I get real data in because it's, it's almost damn near impossible to power rate a team accurately when there's that much turnover and change. Right. Yeah. So the transfer portal, the increased usage of it, the new rule uh, or newish rule of the one time free transfer that now football players are able to take advantage of, as well as the extra COVID year of eligibility. So everyone who played during the COVID year that didn't count. So they, they still get four more years outside of that. All of those things kind of happen at once. And so we're trying we're collecting data on that. And we're trying to massage into the model appropriately at the right rate. Like, how does this all impact itself? We learned a lot from USC last year, uh, Lincoln Riley turned over quite a bit of that USC roster in year one for him. So 
I was probably I was too low on USC coming in last year because I wasn't quite sure all those pieces were going to fit together. The, the the narrative was, you know, this isn't a video game. You can't just plug and play these pieces. It's not Xbox. You can't just throw all the talent in the world on a roster and it's going to mesh. Well, on offense, it actually did for USC. Um, defense, maybe not so much. They're still working on that. And they had a lot of turnover luck last year. So that has to be considered with USC as well. You mentioned Colorado. They've taken that USC model and they've taken it times 10. I mean, this is, we haven't seen anything like this ever, let alone since I've been doing the ratings ever. We've never seen this in college football with this much turnover in one year. So yes, um, I am taking a wait and see approach, but you know, you're, you're trying to, you're trying to thread that needle. Someone, everyone has to start somewhere. And so you have to have some rating for Colorado. They're going to be improved from last year's team. If I look at my um, big 12 realistic expectations and go to the Colorado tab uh, last year, Colorado finished the year power rated for me, number 125 out of 131 teams at FBS. This year we have 133 and I have Colorado power rated number 99. So they're going to be better, but I'm still mm -hmm. only projecting on average 2.9 wins for Colorado this year. You know, a 60% chance to win three plus only a 3% chance to go bowling. These are the kind of things that I can uh, derive using my numbers and, and use as talking points for conversations like this. The point on Colorado is I think they're going to be better. I think the future could be good for Dion and that program. Again, they're going to transition back to the Big 12 in 2024. So lots changing there on that front too. But year one, they're not going to win as much as maybe some national fans or media might think because of all the excitement. They're going to win more than they did last year, I think. They, they only won one game last year. So I've got a 86% chance that they exceed that win total. But let's pump the brakes on. And early in the, in the winter and in the summer, there was a lot of talk about, you know, Colorado had the sixth most money on them or sixth most bets, not most money, six most bets to make or to win the national championship game, to make the CFP, to win the Pac-12. Like, guys, they're not doing any of that in year one. They're probably not even going bowling, but just let's see improvement and get going in the right direction because this program has been in a bad spot the last couple of years. Are you surprised Deion Sanders jumped on this job? I thought it, if he waited long enough for a couple more years, something – uh, bigger might have presented himself or you just said you get a big job jump on it and, and, and go for it yeah you know every situation is different and I don't know Deion Sanders obviously so I don't know what his thought process is you know going from FCS Jackson, Jackson State to uh, now a, a power five program in Colorado when you know when they were positioned in the Pac-12 um, they were kind of at one standing within the conference. Now they're going to the new look Big 12, and you could say they're in a different standing. So I, I think it's still good. Colorado has some some good history. I mean, you know, the early 1990s, and and the, there are some there are some good times in Colorado's history. The rivalry with Nebraska, you know, when both of them were national powers. They just haven't had a lot of success recently. If I look at the last 10 years, the last decade, K Ford ratings, they finished number 15 in the power ratings in 2016. It was a phenomenal year. They won the Pac-12 South that year, I think, and went to the Pac-12 Championship game. It was a great year. Outside of that year where they finished 15th in my power ratings, the last 10 years, they've never finished higher than 68th. Um, so it, this is a program that needs a shot in the arm. I think Dion can certainly do that. Could he have waited and got a, a, quote, better job or a different job? You know, maybe. But also, if you go to Colorado and you turn it around and you're doing a good job there, a, quote, mm -hmm. better or bigger job is going to find you there, too. I mean, this is yeah. Deion Sanders. You know, he's he's a he's a legend in, in both college football at Florida State and then also in the NFL, of course. He's a big personality. You see him on the commercials and all this. So, you know, prime time, prime. Like he, he He's going to. He's going to bring all that with him. If he does well at Colorado, he can either stay there. It'll be his choice. He can stay there and keep building them up or he can go somewhere else. So um, it, it's hard for me to really comment on that too much, but 
I'm excited to see what he can do at that level. He was playing with a big talent advantage at Jackson State, and that's to his credit because he brought those yeah. th- that talent in. But, power, yeah, exactly. But now it's a little bit more even. Or I mean, he's going to be at a talent disadvantage in almost every game this year. So we'll see how it goes. But I think long term, uh, I think he can he can turn that around. Hey, I want to tell you about Pinnacle. Pinnacle is the world's sharpest sports book and available to bettors in Ontario. Find out what professional bettors have known for the last 25 years. 25 years of competitive odds, your trusted sports book. Bet smart, bet Pinnacle. Must be 19 plus in Ontario. Please play responsibly. Not available in the U.S. Now back to the show. All right, um, let's talk about your power ratings, and I'm going to assume that it's a very difficult to watch every single college football game during the week, so a lot of it relies on data set, right? I know in the NFL, there's lots of places to scrape da- data from, it, like there's a lot of different sites. When I was uh, uh, playing the XFL, it like literally had to pull up every box score and manually transfer over the data. Nobody wanted to filter it. How easy is it to scrape data in in college football? Is it readily available? Yeah, um, I wouldn't say it's readily available to the point that it makes things easy. But yeah, to your point, you know, I'm trying to power rate 133 FBS teams. I also have like a light version of an FCS model. So not nearly as robust as FBS, but there's another 128 teams that are playing at FCS and many of them play FBS teams throughout the year. So um, I have a five TV setup in my basement and uh, college football Saturdays. I got all those things rolling from noon Eastern until well after midnight and, you know, March Madness. It's another fun time for that. But you can only, even though five games are on, you can, your eyes can only be watching one at a time, right? So I'm glancing around watching all that. But even with then, you can't watch every game. And no human can. Even if you recorded every single game, cut out the commercials, it would take you all week to watch every single FBS game with from the previous weekend. So the data, the power of data is real. It sees things that the human eye can. It comprehends things that the human brain can't. Um, and so the, the, the power of data is real. It's difficult sometimes to get the right information that you need or that you want for your model, especially to then present it in the right way, make it usable for you. But there are resources out there. I mean, collegefootballdata.com is one that has some good college football data for people that are wanting to get out there and try it out. Sports Reference has a bunch of college football data um, on different teams and players and all that stuff. Uh, There are also paid services out there. Um, None of them are paying me to say their name, so I won't. But um, there there are paid services out there that you can go get college football data and, and they can customize it for you in the way that uh, that, that works for you and what you're trying to do and accomplish if, if you're trying to power rate teams or if you're just curious and playing around with data sets. So yes, the data is out there. Um, you can get it. It's still not probably as readily available or, or as clean, I guess is a way to say it as I would like, but you know, we make it work and uh, we definitely spend the, the model runs. It, we're scraping and, and running um, kind of continuously all night, Sunday, uh, Saturday into Sunday morning so that we can get the power ratings up and up and running uh, for, for the new release on Sunday morning. But it's an automated process at this point. Uh, I don't know how you would do it if it wasn't, because, again, it would just take too much time. You need an army yeah. of interns, which certainly I don't have. But, uh, yeah, it, it, it's a process, but it's fun. All right, here's my question with the data skew then, because the difference between the best team in NFL and the worst team in the NFL is, like, 17 points, like, if you're going to pick a spread on it, it's it's a nothing difference uh, compared to college where you have spreads that are, like, 49 and 52 points. Uh, when a team is playing a nothing school and they're massive favorites, how much weight does that data have versus uh, playing an opponent that's actually very good? Because I imagine 
if you if you if you put too much weight on that data against really weak teams, it's gonna drag. It's gonna skew the numbers maybe in an incorrect way. That's a really good question, George. So, and I just looked at it quickly up on my website, you know, k4ratings.com. All this stuff's on there. The best power rated team right now that I have is Georgia, 28.9 points per game above FBS average. The worst power rated team I have right now, number 133, that's UMass. They're 22.6 points per game below FBS average. If those two teams played on a neutral field, my numbers would favor Georgia by 51 and a half points. That's a massive spread, obviously. As we're talking about. I mean, you're, you're talking about greater than a 99% win probability at a spread of that, of that magnitude. So, to your question about what do you do with the games that feature these large mismatches, because you're right, these games do happen. And you also have FBS teams that are playing FCS teams. And so some now some FCS teams are better than some FBS teams. And you're trying to always figure out, you know, where is that equilibrium? What's the difference in the scales that you need to use and all of that. But we can't, we don't have the luxury in college football to ignore data. We only have 12 regular season games, so our sample size is incredibly small. This isn't baseball. With 162 games in the regular season of baseball, the best team if you have a good process and you have good players, the best teams will rise to the top. That's why you typically see the best teams make the playoffs in baseball. They don't always win the World Series, but that's because you've taken a 162-game season and distilled it down, in some cases, to a one-game like wildcard play-in and then a best-of-seven series or whatever. And so now you've decreased the sample size way down, and you get that random that, that variance, and you get unpredictable outcomes. But for college football, we get that from the jump. There's only 12 games. And so the way that I kind of talk about this is, would I love to see the best teams play each other every single week? Sure, that's fun for fan engagement and everything. But it's also really important that we have non-conference games so that we could have good interconnectivity between the data sets within all of FBS to, to connect the conferences and to kind of create that hierarchical rank of conferences uh, against each other. We can't ignore data in any game, but what we can do is adjust for opponents, and that's just as much an art as it is a science, which makes my science brain uh, go haywire sometimes. But you know, you, you're trying to you're trying to do that the best you can. But what we can do for those games and really any game is the model has an expectation. So the model is saying, okay, Georgia, and I won't use Georgia versus UMass. Let me use Georgia versus Washington. Okay, so Georgia, power rated 28.9, Washington power rated 12.9. So you, you um, take those two differences and what, that's 16 points. So my numbers on a neutral field would favor Georgia by 16. And you can't just look at what the final margin was because oftentimes the final score is not indicative of how a game was played. You have things like garbage time, but you also have so much, you have turnover luck, you have, you know, missed field goals, all those things. So all that's being accounted for here, but for the sake of the conversation, there's an expectation that the model has that Georgia is going to beat Washington by 16 on neutral field. If Georgia beats Washington by 35 points and they put them in garbage time by halftime or in the third quarter, Georgia's power rating is going to improve and Washington's is going to, to, to get worse because Georgia exceeded the expectation that the model had for it. If Georgia played Washington with a spread of 16 and Georgia won by a field goal or Washington won the game outright, again, assuming we didn't have just like the most crazy results from within the game, you know, seven turnovers and three pick sixes, Georgia's power rating is going to go down and Washington is going to go up. So I'm using those two teams as an example, but you can name any two teams you want. That principle applies. The model has an expectation for each team in that game. If you exceed the expectation, it is likely that the model is going to improve your power rating. If you fall short of the expectation, it's likely the model is going to decrease your power rating. And if you are right around that expectation, both teams uh, or either team, then it is likely that your power rating is going to stay the same uh, in that week. But the farther we get into the season, the the more that in-season data matters and the and the less that, that preseason data matters. And so that's all, all those things are con- converging and happening at the same time simultaneously. 
And so there's a lot happening behind the scenes, kind of swirling around with a model. But ultimately, what spits out there at the end is a power rating for every team. And that's what we roll with. So it's completely automated or do you have some manual uh, aspects to it? There are still some manual aspects. Um, and so I have done, a, I think I have done a good job of minimizing those manual aspects and the things that I need to do manually every single week as I've gotten better at doing this. And as I've gotten more proficient with, with the things, the tools that I'm working with, it's majority automated now. And it's a good thing. It has to be because you wouldn't be able to do it all manually, like I said, but there are still some things about my process that are manual. And I actually don't mind that because I'm now, I'm in a, I'm in a groove, right? I know what I'm doing. I know where to look. And if something doesn't feel right, there are kind of checkpoints, if you will, for me along the way to make sure that everything's kind of passing the sniff test. Because if it's fully automated and something spits out at the end and I say, oh, that doesn't look right. Now I have to go back and check every single step through the process. And there are hundreds and hundreds of steps. So by having these checkpoints with the manual inputs or the manual checks, I'm able to see, okay, wait, hold on. Something's not right here, but it was right at the last checkpoint. I need to go back and check the, check the last 10 steps to see where this disconnect is happening. So it saves me time actually by, in, in, in a way um, by having some manual checkpoints, but certainly we automate a lot of it. Your, your due diligence, right? Your quality control, right? At the end. hundred percent. And you have to, because if you're putting something out there and then it's wrong and you know, you're, you're touting it as, Hey, you know, this is, I believe this is a respected model. This, you know, this has some value out there for people. And if you're putting out mistakes week in, week in and week out, and I'm not saying I don't make mistakes. I do. And people catch them and I say, Oh my gosh, great call. Here it is fixed or whatever. And oftentimes it's graphics related, not actually numbers, but that's okay too. Um, you're human, you're going to make mistakes. But if you're putting them out there weekly with mistakes, I mean, that's a bad look. And that's bad for, you know, the K4 rating brand and, and all that stuff. So I want to do good work. Having manual checkpoints allows me to kind of double check myself. And yeah, I still have mishaps with graphics here or there. They're like, hey, it says Ole Miss, but you have the Wisconsin logo. Shoot, my bad. It's pulling the wrong thing. Let me change it. The numbers are right. I just got to change the logo. Okay. Let me ask you about injuries because in the NFL, uh, it's fairly easy, not fairly easy, but we quantify what a quarterback is worth or a star player, and then the next level is cluster injuries. It's very hard. I imagine in college, 133 teams, um, a lot of it's heavily reliant on the coach and the system. I imagine it must be very difficult to quantify what an injury is worth. Yeah, and we don't really necessarily have an injury report like you do in the NFL. So you're oftentimes checking lots of different places to see what player availability is looking like. But yes, uh so for me in the preseason with returning production, that's obviously player level data. But once we get going in the season, I am primarily looking at team level data. And so certain players, you know, typically quarterbacks, you're talking about Caleb Williams, you're talking about Drake May, you're talking about uh, Bo Nix, you know, Mike Penix Jr. Like these players who are going to disproportionately affect the success or failure of their team, typically the quarterbacks. Um, so some others, you know, Marvin Harrison Jr. is a receiver, uh, Blake Corum, a running back at Michigan, Brock Bowers, tight end at Georgia. Like some of these players, too, could have a significant impact. But for the most part, you know, injuries, you take them, you roll with them. You might make an adjustment here or there if it's significant. But otherwise, I'm putting the numbers out there and I'm saying, hey, these things off the top are typically not accounting for player availability, such as injuries or suspensions, things like that. Weather, travel, scheduling, nuances, all those things. So that's I put numbers out there as a starting point for conversation and for people to look at. Ultimately, the fan, the viewer, they have to make those subject subjective adjustments for themselves. Um, and, they, and they've done that. All right. Um, let's talk about home field because there's this dynamic in the NFL where we are coming to realize that home field has become a shrinking advantage in the NFL for, I don't know, a myriad of reasons. Maybe teams are traveling easier. They've figured out the right uh, schedule to get everybody's body clock rhythm. Um, 
in college, it still feels like there is a large home field advantage depending on the the level of the game and the rivalry and the location. How do you figure out what a home field advantage looks like across a board of 133 teams? Gosh, George, for a guy who says, you know, I'm an NFL guy, I'm not really a college, you're, you're asking all the right questions. Like home, home field advantage in college is a real thing. Here's the here's one of the biggest things I'd like to improve with my model in the summer of 2024 or at some point, but it won't be this year. A uh, variable home field advantage that is adjusted per venue. Right now, I have a consistent home field advantage built into the model. So I'm using the same home field advantage if you're playing at Bryant Denny at Alabama or you're playing at Peden Stadium at Ohio University. Those home field advantages are typically not actually worth the same amount. And then also, there, I would like to build in something about the opponent you're playing because right now the the home field advantage for Alabama when they host Samford is the same as Alabama when they host LSU. The crowd is not acting the same in those two games. And so I would love to um, get that incorporated in the model. I have not to this point. The typical home field advantage that you'll see most models using in college football space is around two and a half points. You are seeing it trending a little bit lower. I will say my number that I'm using this year is slightly lower than two and a half points, um, still more than two. But that kind of two, two and a half range is what we're looking at on home field for the most part. Um, but you're right. To the best models out there, the ones that are really going to nail down on on the details of a game and, and, and the aspects of it, they're going to have a variable home field advantage per venue, and they're going to have a variable home field advantage within the venue, depending on the opponent. So I would love to see that incorporated. You've hit on two things I'd love to incorporate, the, the, the coaching staff uh, factors and the home field advantage. Trust me, George, I've got a list. Uh, every. I have a running list of how to improve the model ideas that I have and all the thing that changes every year. There's two things that change. Uh, it gets longer and the number at the top changes. It's like ideas to implement for 2023. Well, I've changed that now because it's too late ideas to implement for 2024. I have incorporated things from that list from previous years now into 23, but I have added more than I've been able to incorporate. So I have this running list. Those two things that you, that we've touched on though, they're right near the top. And so I'm hopeful that we're able to get to that in 24 Another year of data is going to help me um, both re refine both of those areas. But yeah, man, you're hitting it spot on. Home field advantage, that's huge in college football. Hardest thing to do in college football is win on the road. I don't care who you are. I don't care what level you're playing at. I don't care if you're playing your rival or conference game or non-conference. Hardest thing to do in college football is win on the road. Hey, the easiest way to improve as a sports better is use multiple sports books and always get the best odds. We recommend using an odds comparison tool like BetStamp. BetStamp compares odds across every sports book for games, futures, and player props. Save time and money by checking BetStamp before you bet. Download the app today. If you're looking to sign up for a new sportsbook account, please check out the offers available at betstamp.app forward slash circles off or hit the link in the description. If you sign up through this page, it helps support the show. Now back to the episode. Oh, yeah. I'm going to give you an analogy. It's going to include like McDonald's and Twitter, okay? And uh, some companies, they do so much R uh, research on their product before they release it to the public. They want to make sure it's perfect. When when a menu item hits McDonald's, they've, they've done that. They've been studying this combination of items for like nine months, whereas Twitter is a currently active thing, but it's constantly being redesigned in real time. You put out public ratings and you talk about having to tweak and every year it's a project, right? You're getting better at it. Do you know who your audience is? Because I know like with Ken Palm and college basketball, 
guys like me who want to compete in a March Madness bracket and don't follow college basketball, I'll use uh, a public ratings. I'm like, just to get a grasp of who's who I use, like uh, gambling odds to figure out who's uh, who the market believes is the better team. Uh, my producer is the one who told me, Hey, I'd really like you to interview Kelly because me and my buddies use his ratings when we're, uh, betting college football. Do you know who your audience is? Do you think it's mostly betters or do you think it's also college, uh, football fans? Yeah. Well, first I'd just like to say thanks for Jason or to Jason for, uh, putting me in touch with you and making this thing happen. So I appreciate that, Jason. I'm glad you and your friends, uh, enjoy my content, but my, my audience, I guess I, it's college football fans. And yes, there are people out there, especially now that I'm back on the power rating scale of points per game above or below FBS average. The last few years, I've been on a zero to 100 scale, which has made it very difficult. Well, actually, it's made it impossible for people in, in the public to identify what my uh, kind of behind the scenes numbers are for above and below to generate the spreads. You were not previously able to generate my projected spreads from the numbers that I was publicly producing. I have changed that this year and gone back to the way I was prior to the 2021 season. I have a couple of reasons for that. We don't have time to go into it or probably interest to go into it, but people have used my numbers for betting purposes. I working in college athletics uh, do not um, encourage that. I don't advise of that. I don't place bets myself. I don't use my numbers to bet. Um, I don't, I don't tell people how to bet with my numbers. But the numbers are presented in such a way that people can use that. Um, folks that have used it in the past, both prior to uh, me changing the rating scale and also in the interim for those that I did share it with behind the scenes, um, it, they they have su experienced uh, success and financial gains from doing so. Again, I don't, but they they have, they can. I'm also not telling you if you go use my numbers that you're going to have a profitable year betting college football. Like that is not a guarantee. That's not something I'm touting. It, it, these are for edu or for entertainment and fun purposes only. Like that is what I say. That is what I mean. I think that yes, so, while some people use it for that, I think honestly, George, a lot of people that follow me on social media or follow me on Twitter, they enjoy the graphic display, the graphical displays because they think, you know, hey, it actually, you know, it's all this data, but it's condensed down to a way that's easy to um, bring in, like easy to take in and to digest and to understand. Yeah. And they like and they like seeing where their team is. Uh, now, sometimes they don't like seeing where their team is. And trust me, they, they let me know about that, too. Uh, getting into some back and forth on Twitter. Now I just mute those people. Oh, and yeah, kind nothing of like on. rankling a fan base with power yeah. ratings or power right. ratings. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, so I get into that for sure a little bit, but I try not to engage in that stuff, but I really think most people that are following me, yeah, there's some gambling types. Most people that are following me, they love college football. Like I do. They love their team. Like I do. And they want to see how their team stacks up, you know, against the national contenders. They want to see how it stacks up within their conference. They want to see what's, what's Kelly's numbers. What's Kelly's model say about my team's prospects of going bowling this year or of winning our conference or of winning 10 games. All of those things can be derived from my numbers. I think people, they, they enjoy it for the most part, those that are following. They don't always agree, and that's okay. I don't always agree with the numbers. Kay Ford ratings the model, puts out objective numbers. Kelly Ford, the college football fan, looks at those and sometimes says, you know what, like, I don't know. I got Georgia number one. I'm not sure. I am sure. Georgia is number one. But an example could be other things like that. Like, hey, you know, I've got, I'm trying to think, Arkansas. Or no, here's one. Here's a good one. South Carolina. I got South Carolina power rated 36 projected 6.9 or no, sorry uh 6.9 points above fbs uh average is what they are 
I'm projecting for South Carolina this year just um, as I look at them here. Uh, Give me one second. South Carolina. I am projecting 3.3 conference wins for the Gamecocks, but overall I'm projecting 5.8. So there's only a 57% chance by my numbers that South Carolina goes bowling. They have a top five most difficult schedule, so that's certainly part of it. But South Carolina recently has been a program that they have these intangibles about them. They have these synergies. They're kind of moving in the right direction. The model can't capture all that. So while I have South Carolina power rated 36, are they better than the 36 best team in the country? Probably. Uh, now watch, I'll, I'll, I've said that and now they'll have a terrible year. But, you know, subjectivity can come in from the viewer. And, and I'm a viewer too. So I look at the numbers. I say, okay, where do I agree? Where do I disagree? And I think that's what most of the people on social media do. Um, but yeah, it's been fun. You know, that, that's why I'm there. I'm there to talk about college football, talk, talk through, through the lens of numbers and just, you know, see what we can do and see what we can figure out about these teams. Uh, ultimately, the games are going to be played and it all unfolds before our eyes. And that's what we have fun um, observing. But having a, uh, having a background in numbers, rooting your perspective in numbers gives you a realistic view, a realistic expectation is what I say, of what you can expect out of your team in any given year. And that's what I like. I think most people on social media like that too. All right. This episode's coming out Monday of week one college football. This is like a primer. I want to talk a little bit of current um, this season football and just to get people prepared. Before I do that, you alluded to like bowl season and it feels like bowl season has just been butchered now that, you know, between the transfer portal and people not wanting to get hurt uh, and ruin their draft stock. So many of these bowls feel like they're just, they're doing them just to do it. Is there a way to get people interested in bowls again? Do, do they have to financially in, incentivize people to play in it or do they scrap it and go bigger playoff? What would you like to see done about what's happened to bowl season right now? So here's my hot take for as much of a traditionalist as I am of college football. I like things the way they used to be. And sometimes people accuse me of being that old man on the lawn yelling at clouds like I get it. But I actually bowl season to me. It's fun. It's exciting. I've never gotten super jacked up about the bowls. I'll be completely honest. I'm not saying we need to cut down bowls. There are people out there who say, why are we playing this bowl? Let's cut it out. What do we No, I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying. I don't necessarily love bowl season. I, that's never been the draw for me. I enjoy it because it's college football, of course. And it's the last college football we're going to get for eight months. Like we've, like we've just come out of here, uh, the longest eight months of the year. But to me, it's all about the regular season. That's what I love about college football. I love college football Saturdays. I love that every single game out there for every team matters for one reason or another. It's their goals. It's their rival. It's just if we don't win, coaches fired and we don't want that, right? Or maybe the fan base does. I don't know. But um, it's that's what I love. The, but to answer your question about bowl season, Bowl season started to, quote, not matter when adults around college football and those running the sport started saying it didn't matter. Mm. That's when we started getting these players opting out. Uh, you know, it happened eight, nine, ten years ago now. Isn't that's Clowney, what- Clowney was like the first big one where he, he just didn't want to play. He already knew his first overall pick and uh, he decided to sit out. Or am I, or am I thinking somebody else? Well, I think there was there was chatter. So he had the big hit against Michigan at the end of his sophomore year. And that, like, holy cow, this dude would be ready to go to the NFL right now. But he has to say one more year. There was chatter about him sitting out the entire season um, in 20. What that would have been 2014, I think. Um, but Christian McCaffrey's one that people usually point to and say he set out the bowl season. And, you know, he's he's a Stanford guy, right? Like he, he shouldn't be doing this. That's kind of what the narrative was. And I listen. I think student athletes, they're going to and they should do what's right for them. Would I like to see them all play in bowl season? Sure. But like I said, I'm I'm not really loving bowl season in the first place as it relates to the the larger scope of college football. So to fix bowl season, if you will, I do think that incentivizing the players to play through financial compensation 
if we can figure that out again, I work in college athletics. I know the rules around NIL and permissibility of what we can and can't do. I'm not suggesting that this is what we do, but we need to find a way to incentivize them. Money is typically the best incentivizer in the world, regardless of what industry or age you're talking about. So yes, that could happen. You said, or do we just need to do get rid of them and expand the playoff? Like, I don't want to get rid of bowls. I also don't want to expand the playoff. I'm a pretty adamant stay. You like six? You think six is the right number, or uh... I, I I think four is the right number, George. If we're being it's, honest. It's, it's going to six though, right? Am I, is that what I'm remembering? I wish it was going to six. It's going to 12. So, um, I, I, wow. I can, yeah, that's in 2024. We got one more year of the four teams. So I'm excited about that. Um, I could get behind six. I really could. Uh, but 12 to me is too many and that's what we're doing. But again, I like the regular season. That's why I love it. Um, my team's Ohio state. So again, for me, my team's going to make the 12 team playoff, you know, nine out of 10 years. I'm, I'm, I'm pretty confident in that the, 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 we're going to be in the playoff. And so to me, what pains me right now, and as I'm watching college football through the lens of my team, when we lose a regular season game, you know, when we lose to Oregon a couple years ago, when you lose to Oklahoma a few years ago, when you lose to Michigan each of the last two years, which that one stings worse than all, you, it hurts for a lot of reasons, but it hurts because you know, dang, like, there went our chance. Like we're we're pro- we we might get a mulligan. You can get in with one loss. Oh, I happened to Ohio State in 2014. It happened to Ohio State in 2016. Um, you can get in with one loss, but it really makes the path hard. It makes it narrow. Now Ohio State can lose two, maybe even three games, and they're yeah, gonna they, make they're, they're, they're gonna make they're gonna make the playoff. So I mean, to me. Again, I'm going to love the regular season. Those losses are going to sting. But in the back of your mind, you're human. You can't help but think, you know what? Mm, we're still going to make the playoff. It's yeah. all right. Like We'll make it. So I don't think expanding the playoffs the answer. I don't think cutting bulls is the answer. I think finding a way to incentivize the players, that's certainly an answer. Um, but also, it just it comes back to the players are going to do what's right for them. And, you know, I, it's hard. I can't sit here and tell them not to because in life, I'm going to do what's best for me and what's best for my family, right? And so I'm pretty hypocritical if I sit there and look at a player who I don't know and I don't know his circumstances and say, you know, you should go play in that Gator Bowl. You should go play in that Motor City Bowl, uh, that Little Caesars Bowl. Like, uh, why, dude? Like, all I'm going to do is have a chance to get hurt when, you know, in two months I can be – or four months I can be an NFL draft pick and make a bunch of money and set up my family for a while and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, I think incentivizing them is a way to do it, but I think I've gotten off topic on you on, on my thoughts there, so sorry to take us off the rails. No, I love that. Uh, let's talk some team level data. So you you say you're an Ohio State fan, and like for me, I'm an outsider, and I'm thinking, oh, they lost C.J. Stroud, they lost Jackson Smith and Jigba. I know they have Marvin Harrison, but I'm like, oh, this guy's got Ohio State as like the second power rated team above Michigan, and I've been hearing like there's a lot of optimism about Michigan, but then I look at the betting odds, and Ohio State's above Michigan to win the national title. So it's not just uh, homerism here. Um, why? Why is Ohio State still better than Michigan? Yeah, so I'm I'm glad you mentioned the betting odds too, because Vegas is certainly not playing favorites. Um, they, they might they might shade lines certain ways based on fan base size and all that, but overall they're trying to make equal money on both sides, so that's how they're doing it. I'm not playing favorites either, despite what people might think when they look at this and say, "Oh, okay," but no, really, I'm not. Here's here's the deal for me. Yes, Ohio Michigan is the they are the kings of the Big Ten. The last two years, Michigan has beaten Ohio State, Michigan has played in and won the Big Ten Championship, and Michigan has played in the CFP. They are the undisputed kings of the Big Ten. Ohio State, they have three goals every year, and they're very open about it. They want to beat the team up north, as they say. I, I, I say Michigan, but people in the program don't say Michigan. They don't say that word. They want, to beat the, they want to beat the team up north. They want to win the Big Ten, and they want to win the national championship. Ohio State is 0-4-6 in their goals in the last two years. That stings. That hurts. And that hurts fans. That hurts the players. That hurts the coaches. It hurts the, coach, hurts the students at the school. Like, it hurts everybody. 
So they're coming back. They're going to be excited. Yes, they lost C.J. Stroud. Uh, at the time of this recording, they st- maybe by the time it be- is published, they will have named a starter. At the time of the recording, I don't believe they have named a starter yet in that quarterback race just yet. But the reason that I still have Ohio State power rated ahead of Michigan, despite all those things I just said, those are all historical achievements on the field, which Michigan should be proud of and should get credit for, and rightly so, should be called right now the kings of the Big Ten. But I'm not looking at those things when I'm doing power ratings because I'm looking forward. I'm trying to project into this year. My numbers, when you, you talk, you look at the three things that my numbers incorporate in the preseason, as I talked about earlier, it's returning production, which actually Michigan does have the advantage there. It's recent recruiting, which Ohio State has the advantage there. And it's recent K-Ford rating, which again, Ohio State has the advantage there. So those things aren't equally weighted, but on the aggregate, Ohio State is coming out on top of Michigan in that head-to-head comparison. Michigan's still coming out number four nationally. This is a very, very good football team in which I have them as underdogs in only one game, and that is to Ohio State in the final game of the regular season. So, um, And that game's at Michigan, so that could be a difference maker too in this, even though Michigan won in Columbus last year. Um, so that's why it's because it's, it's very straightforward in the preseason. Look at the data that, I do, that I'm putting into the preseason model, and that is what you see, and that is a, a consistently applied across all 133 teams. Once we get going in the season, if Michigan starts exceeding expectations and Ohio State starts falling short of expectations that the model has for them in each of those games, as I talked about earlier, then Michigan will certainly pass Ohio State in the power ratings and become a favorite. And even if they don't pass Ohio State in the power ratings, all they have to do is close the gap enough to uh, the point that the home field advantage kicks in, and maybe that's the bump that they're able to. Well, it's always it's always kicked in. They need to close the gap enough so that the home field advantage can then overcome the difference in power rating and make Michigan a home favorite for me um, in that game. But right now, I have Ohio State with a uh, a 24% chance to go 12 and 0. I have Michigan with an 11% chance to go 12 and 0. Each of these two teams are in my top four most likely to make the CFP. Ohio State, I have a 53% chance. Michigan, I have a 36% chance to make the CFP. So that game at the end of the year, that's obviously going to be a big one. It always is. Can both teams get to that game undefeated? They haven't been able to uh, in recent years. I Actually, I'm thinking back. I think the only time they've ever been both undefeated in that game might be 2006. No, that's when they were one and two. I think the most recent time they were both undefeated, though, in that game was 2006 when they were one and two, which is the only time in, in series history, I believe, that they had those rankings coming into the year mm. or coming into the game. Well, it's not just you. Uh, Pinnacle, uh, the world's sharpest sports book, has them as the third and fourth best chances to win the national title. They also have Georgia and Alabama one and two. You have them power rated as one and three. Both teams lost their quarterbacks, but yet the expectations are clearly high. Which team do you think is better positioned this year? And do you see either of them getting derailed because of poor quarterback play? I'll take the first. I'll take the second question first. Uh, no for Georgia, and that's largely due to the schedule they're playing. I really don't think there's any team on the schedule, even if they have poor quarterback play. I think the overall talent roster that they have is going to be good enough to win those games, even with a uh, subpar quarterback performance. For uh, The closest game I have for Georgia is they're favored by 10 at Tennessee in Week 12. Um, Alabama, maybe. And it's not because I don't think Alabama's a good team. I mean, on a neutral field, I have Georgia favored over Alabama by less than a field goal. Um, So I do have Georgia as the better team. I do have Georgia with the best chance to make the CFP at 70%. Alabama's at 41%. 
for me, Alabama can get derailed because the schedule they're playing is much more difficult. It's the top five most difficult schedule in the country. Uh, I favor them by nine against Texas in week two and by eight against LSU in week 10, coming off a bye for both those teams. Um, so their two most difficult games are at home. So that's good for them when you're talking about a young quarterback, a new quarterback. Uh, but I think Alabama has a better chance to get derailed because of quarterback play, because of the opponents that they're facing. Now, which team is better positioned to to, to have the most success this year? I'm going to go with Georgia for some of the reasons I just alluded to. The schedule is the biggest thing. Uh, power rated schedule or, or most difficult schedule, number 54. So it's among the 15 easiest in the Power Five schedules this year. There's reasons for that. You know, the Oklahoma game got canceled. They don't. Georgia doesn't get to play themselves. Uh, Georgia Tech's a rival, which I love seeing, but they're not a very good team. Um, the, the, the teams that they catch out of the West aren't Alabama or LSU in the regular season. So there's reasons for it, but it doesn't change the fact that Georgia is still the best team in the country by my numbers. Um, but because of that schedule, I have a 46% chance Georgia goes 12 and 0, best team in the country. Uh, they have a 70, or excuse me, they have an 87% chance to make the SEC championship game in Atlanta. So 87% chance to win the East. They are better positioned. They are best positioned because they are the best team and because they have a more advantageous schedule. So to me, that's the answer. The Bulldogs are good. I don't care who's playing quarterback, really, um, at least until that SEC championship game. The end of the, I mean, we all expect Georgia to roll to Atlanta. Once they get to Atlanta, though, all bets are off. While I still might have a favorite in those games, depending on how this season goes, they're going to be playing a tough team. You're going to be playing most likely either Alabama or LSU. That's going to be a tough game. Once you make it to the CFP, assuming they do, you're going to be playing some tough teams. Like You're going to be playing Ohio State's, Michigan's, USC's, Clemson's, Texas. I mean, somebody like that, right? So they're going to be challenged. It's just they're probably not going to be challenged until later in the year, which by that point you would hope the quarterback – has enough reps and game experience that he's really not playing like a first year starter. Got it. Got it. You mentioned two names there that like they're in that intermediate price range that people are looking to speculate on. And that's Clemson and LSU who are, I believe sixth or seventh um, at prices to win. You happen to have them at five and seven. They both have known coaches, Brian Kelly, Dabo Sweeney. I believe it's Brian Kelly's second year in LSU. Um, which one of those two teams looking on the outside in do you think has a better chance of making the playoffs and like which which team do you trust more this year? So it's a two-part question. LSU is the better team for me. I have LSU power rated number five, 20.6 points above FBS average per game. Uh, Clemson power rated number seven, 18.7 points per game above FBS average. So on a neutral field, my numbers would like the LSU Tigers over the Clemson Tigers by about two points. But my answer to your question, who has a better chance to make the CFP or win a national championship? My answer is Clemson, because my numbers have Clemson with a 25% chance to make the CFP. LSU's at a 16% chance. The answer is largely dependent on the or largely hinging on the conference in which these teams play. While LSU is only an underdog in one game by my numbers, um, that would be the game against Alabama, like I said, on the road in week 10 by eight points. Clemson. It's only only game they're underdog in, but they are an underdog in a game and they are playing in the SEC, which is a more difficult schedule or more difficult conference than the ACC. Clemson, I have them favored in every single game this year. And actually, I have them favored by at least a field goal in every game. There are only two games in which my numbers view Clemson as less than a 10 point favorite or maybe there's three less than a nine and a half point favorite. It's Florida state by uh, four points in week four at home. And it's Notre Dame by five and a half points. Um, at or at home in week 10. So both of those games for Clemson as their most difficult are games in which they are playing at home. 
Um, to me, it's Clemson, number seven nationally. Like I said, a top 20 offense. Cade Klubnick's going to be the quarterback. I think I'm excited about him. I think he should have been given the reins earlier last year, and maybe the season turns out differently, but we'll never know. It's a top 10 defense, 7% chance to go 12-0, 30% chance to win at least 11 regular season games. So I'm going to say Clemson between those two. It's not because I think Clemson's a better team. It's because I think Clemson is a, a still really good team, the best team in the ACC, but they have a much easier path, and so that's what, that's what makes the difference for me. All right, let's talk about USC because they've got this QB prospect, best guy we've seen in maybe a decade, maybe better than Trevor Lawrence, maybe the best we've seen since Andrew Luck. They are fifth on pinnacle to win it. You have them eighth in your power ratings. Um, do you think USC is going to end up in the playoff? They, they look like they were heading there last year and just uh, the last week or two didn't end up going well. What needs to happen for USC to actually contend for the title? So again, you said they're fifth in the pinnacle odds, but I have them seven or eighth. They are eighth in my power ratings, but very similar to the LSU Clemson debate we just had. USC USC is fit has the fifth best odds to make the CFP by my numbers. So it's twenty five percent just better than Clemson's twenty five percent. I mean, we're rounding here, but um, USC is the number five favorite to make the CFP. What I said about Clemson applies to to USC as well. The conference in which they play um, is easier than the SEC, although the Pac-12 race is going to be phenomenal. I'm so excited about it. There are four really good teams at the top with two more ready to pounce if if things break the right way. But USC is the class of the Pac-12 by my numbers. They're power rated number eight overall. That's number one in the Pac-12. Um, I have Oregon at 13, Utah at 15, Washington at 17. So they're all nipping at the heels in all four of those teams. They play a true round robin this year. They all play each other. There's three games that uh, they get three games against each other. And to me, who's going to win two games out of three or three out of three, obviously, but who's going to win two out of three. They're going to be in the Pac-12 championship. Most likely uh, if you're able to get two of those um, and, and put your contending rivals down in those games. So USC for me, um, power number eight, number two offense in the entire country. Talk about Caleb Williams. Uh, they're going to be great. I have concerns about the defense number 54 nationally for this defense right now. Um, the first six games on their schedule, George, my numbers favor USC by at least 17 points or more in all of those games. They have an 89% win expectancy or greater in each of their first six games. Their season really doesn't start until week seven when they go on the road to Notre Dame. Listen to this schedule. On the road at Notre Dame, I make them a pick them. Next week, you're home to Utah. I like you by six and a half. The next week, a tricky game because it's a sandwich game. You're on the road at Cal. I like you by 14 and a half. Next week, Washington comes to town. I favor you by eight. The next week, you go to Oregon. I like you by a point and a half. And the final week, you get your rivalry game against UCLA at home. I like you by 13. So they have a six-week stretch at Notre Dame, home to Utah. Those are two top 15 teams. At Cal, which is could be tricky because you're welcoming in Washington the next week, who's a top 20 team. At Oregon, is top 15 team. And then UCLA to close the year, number 31 in my, in my power ratings. USC schedule gets tough at the end. It's easy as it can be the first half. The back half is hard. Um, but USC, for me, what has to go right for them to, to make the national championship, you said, or, or to make the CFP? Um, if they just win the games they're favored to win, they're going to get there because I favor them in all 12. Um, but the defense, the defense has to play better than what we saw last year because that turnover luck that they experienced last year, they – I can't say they won't because I would have said they wouldn't last year. It is highly unlikely that they will experience the same level of turnover luck that they experienced last year again this year. For that reason, the defense needs to play better than the 54th best unit in the country by my numbers. Do you think there's a world where the defense plays good enough that uh, Caleb gets to play the Deshaun Watson role the year that they won when Clemson knocked off the monster Alabama in the final? Can can they do that? Can they get a defense good enough that Caleb Williams can beat a Georgia or an Alabama in the playoff? I think so, because they just have to be good enough to make the CFP. 
once you're in the CFP, you've got nearly a month to prepare, which is going to favor the underdog, which USC may be, depending on who they're playing in that game. But you're going to have a whole month to prepare. You're going to be able to scheme it up just right. You're going to have 12, 13 games of tape on your opponent. You're going to be able to get that done. And if you can, you know, game plan your way and then have a good a good showing on defense in the semifinal, which Lincoln Riley hasn't been able to do yet at Oklahoma, but we'll see about moving forward at USC. If you are able to do that and win that game, now you're in the national championship game and it's one game and anything can happen. So I do think they can do that. And I also think Caleb Williams, you're, you're an NFL guy, you say, George. I, I you, you have a better take on this than I do, I'm sure. For me, Caleb Williams is the best quarterback prospect out of college we've seen since Trevor Lawrence, who Trevor Lawrence was the best we'd seen, in my opinion, since Andrew Luck. So, I mean, I'm talking, I'm going all the way back to Andrew Luck, and mm-hmm. I'm a Colts fan, right? So uh, I know what that was all about, but we're going back, you know, over 10 years. I think Caleb Williams is probably the third best quarterback prospect, in my opinion, and I'm not an expert, in my opinion, in the last decade. So I think he does have that talent, that tra- that transcendent talent. Um, and if the defense can get it sorted out, they could win a national championship uh, in Southern Cal this year. That's for sure. You know, it's funny. Um, I said I wasn't too interested in college football. And then you have a conversation with somebody who's enthusiastic and loves it. And it kind of rubbed off on me. Like you, when you told me about that round robin of USC and I'm like, well, I kind of want to watch that now. I, I, I'm getting excited for the season. Kelly, I want to thank you for joining me. But before we go, uh, for those listening that want to see where your ratings are, uh, where can they go to get those? Yeah, for sure. I really appreciate it, George. This has been great. You can find me on Twitter or X at KFord Ratings. You can find me on my website, kfordratings.com. I'm doing some college football writing over at thelines.com. I'm also on the lines.com college football show with my friend Brett. I am on um, Calculated Risk, which is a podcast with a video component with my friend Tyler. That's for Saturday Glory. And then I also, with my friend Zach, do the We Hate Your Team podcast. That's a part of VSN Collegiate Network. So you can find me a lot of different places, but K4 Ratings uh, on Twitter and K4Ratings.com, the website, are your two best bets. Kelly, thanks so much for joining me. Thanks, George. That's it for me. Another edition of 90 Degrees is in the books. I want to thank my guest, Kelly Ford from TheLines.com, the sponsors of this podcast, Pinnacle and Betstamp, and my producer, Jason Cooper. Thanks for listening. Do me a favor before you go. Like the content, subscribe, share, and comment. We'll be back next week with another guest on the 90 Degrees podcast where we take an inside look into the sports betting industry. That's it for me. Hope you enjoyed. Until next time.